The following resource is from Christ Community Church. For more information, please visit lovinglord.org. Father, we humbly come to you this morning as those made in your image. We understand, Father, given our fallen condition, that um, we struggle hearing your word. We certainly struggle understanding it. And in many ways, Father, we struggle responding to it. I ask, Lord, that you would, by your Spirit, be gracious with us so that we can look again at this Christmas story, maybe with new eyes and and new hearts, to see the incredible humility of Christ, that he, being the second person of the Holy Triune, Godhead, was willing to come not only to make himself a man, but to come as a baby in Um, very difficult conditions. I pray, Lord, that in light of this teaching, you would humble us, that our hearts would rightly respond to this great truth of your word, um, that we would see the great love that you have for us, and we would see the redemption that can be had in Christ. I ask, Lord, that um, you would bless all those who have gathered here. I ask as well that you be gracious with all your true churches, Lord, all the pastors, your, your under-shepherds throughout the world who are preaching and teaching God's word, I pray you would bless them this morning. I pray for all those who have gathered in places like this uh, that your spirit would move mightily, not only to encourage your children, but to redeem those who yet to know Christ. Um, and do that work here as well, Father. Uh, be pleased to make yourself known that we might worship you really well. Um, we want to... Um, see your glory today, and so we ask that you would show it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So the title of the sermon is Humility That Transforms, and that may not sound like a, uh, a cute little Christmas title, but that was the best I could do, so that's what you got. Um, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20 will be our passage today. It's a big passage, but we're going to be moving through some pieces. If you were here with us several weeks ago, Kirk actually preached through this as well. So we're going to take a little different take than we saw it a few weeks ago. And hopefully you'll, you'll see as the sermon develops what we're doing. While serving as president at Tuskegee University in Alabama, Booker T. Washington, which is a name you probably know if you studied your U.S. history, he was a 19th century black educator and author, born into slavery and then rose to prominence in his writings um, in the civil rights movement back in the late 19th and early part of the 20th century. There's a story that one day he was walking through the town of Tuskegee, um, just taking a walk, and a, a very wealthy white female socialite came up to him and said, would you mind cutting some wood for me? She had no idea who it was. He was already famous at that time. And uh, he looked at her and he realized he had no pressing issues at the moment, so he said, sure. So he went to her house and he split a bunch of wood for her and then he even brought it in and he stacked it neatly by her fireplace. Well, after he left, a little girl recognized it was the famous Dr. Booker T. Washington and she went to the lady and said, do you know who that was? And she said, no. He says, that was Dr. Washington. Well, the next day, the, the wealthy socialite ran down to the university and ran into his office and she sought forgiveness for asking him to do such a humble and lowly work. This was his response. He said, it's perfectly all right, madam. Occasionally I enjoy a little manual labor. Besides, it's always a delight to do something for a friend. 
Of course, he had never met her before that moment. She shook his hand warmly and she assured him that his humble and gracious service toward her had endeared him and his work at the university to her heart. Not long afterward, she showed her admiration for Dr. Washington by persuading several of her very rich friends to donate tens of thousands of dollars to the university, for which Dr. Washington was very grateful. Professor Washington's humility had a transformative impact on this woman and many that were around her. This morning, as we continue in Luke's story of the Christmas story of the coming of Christ, We will see, I hope, that Christ came as a baby 2,000 years ago in order for us to see the great humility of God and transform us just as he transformed those who actually witnessed the birth of Christ. In other words, the transforming power of humility that Christ had then, he has on us today. And that we can hear this story, we can hear the humility of Christ And we can be transformed as well. And we'll be transformed, I pray, in a few ways. One, seeing that that we are sinners in need of help. Number two, we can see that God's love is comprehensive. It really goes beyond um, most boundaries that we set up for it. And then lastly, hopefully, we'll see that humility can beget humility. Right? Christ modeled that for us. And it's something that we should desire as well. So looking again at the Christmas story, I want to show you Three things from the passage. Number one, the Savior's humble entrance reveals our desperate estate. How he came tells us who we are. Number two, the Savior's humble audience reveals God's comprehensive love. Him talking to the shepherds first reveals God's love for all mankind. And number three, the Savior's humble beginning produces a humble response. The right response to seeing Christ come as a baby should be humility, not pride. Okay? The theme of the sermon would be this, Christ came in humility to raise the humble to glory. Christ came in humility to raise the humble to glory. Point number one, the Savior's humble entrance reveals our desperate estate. So approximately six months after John the Baptist was born, and we saw last week Zechariah's amazing prophecy when he was filled with the Spirit, and he told about all the great things that Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior would do. Luke, Luke picks up here in chapter 2 and he begins to talk about the, the narrative, uh, the story surrounding the actual birth of Christ. And it's in the middle of this emperor-wide census. Look at verse 1, Luke 2, verse 1. Luke writes, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So Caesar Augustus, he ruled for approximately 40 years, a very long time for a Caesar of Rome from 27 BC to 14 AD. And it was at the exact time that Quirinius was the governor over Syria, and that's the time when Christ was actually born. Now the historical record tells us that Rome loved to do They loved to have these censuses. And they did that because they wanted to see how many people were under their control. How many people in the Roman Empire they had authority over. Look at verse 3. And all went to be registered. That's all those in uh, Roman provinces. Each to his own town. Verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, 
which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, they were engaged, that word means engaged, who was with child. So Joseph takes Mary, she's already pregnant, we know that. She takes Mary to travel from um, Nazareth in Galilee, about 90 miles south to the little town of Bethlehem, where, of course, King David was born. He's going to submit to the authorities of Rome and, and fulfill his part in the census. Um, what was oblivious to Rome, but God fully knew, that God was going to use this episode, this movement by, by the Roman Caesar to bring in and introduce the true Caesar of not just Rome, but of the entire empire. And this was prophesied, we know, 700 years before Jesus was born. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, God said to the prophet of Micah that the Savior, the son of David, would be born in a town, Bethlehem Ephrathah, which wasn't even known at that time. It was so small and insignificant at the time that Micah prophesied. Listen to this. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Micah says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, so little not even on a map at that time, from you shall come forth from me, for me, one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old of old, from ancient of days. In other words, that was a prophecy that God had made through the prophet Micah, 700 years before the birth of Christ, that the Messiah, the Savior, not just of Israel, but the entire world was going to come and be born in Bethlehem. And they knew this. this. The prophets knew this. This was a teaching that had made its way down to the time of Christ that this ancient of days would be coming and be born in the town of Bethlehem because that was David's hometown. That's where he was born. And of course, the Savior would come from whom? From the line of David, from the line of King David. Verse six. And while they were there, while David and Mary were in Bethlehem now, the time came for Mary, for her, for Mary, to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So the, 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 Luke tells the story very briefly um, in this context. And there's reason for it because the, the glory comes in the announcement to the shepherds. But Mary, Mary's a good mother and she's following good Palestinian practice and she takes her baby and she wraps him up, just like we do today. We think of a swaddling cloth. It's very much like a blanket that would wrap that baby up nice and tight, keep him nice and cozy. But instead of Mary and Joseph putting their brand new baby boy, their firstborn son, into that beautiful nursery that most people today plan for, well, they'll, they'll paint it these beautiful colors, and they'll put in a crib or a bassinet and all these toys or stuffed animals. Mary does not have the option to do that. She has to take Jesus who is the son of God, the eternal son of God, and she has to place him in a manger. She actually has to put him into a feeding trough. That's where he's going to spend his first night on earth, a feeding trough made for animals. And they have to do this. They have to make, do this makeshift nursery in a manger because there was, no, there was no place in the inn in Bethlehem. There were so many people coming for the census that the inn was crowded, and so that's the only place they could go. Now, we hear that, and the Western version of mangers is really, it's kind of funny. Um, when I grew up, my parents had a manger, and it had this beautiful little red light that shone in the back, and, and there were little animals there, and it was nice and cozy, and there was hay, and it was really cute, and it looked like it wouldn't be a bad place to, to camp or spend the night. Um, 
In fact, in the Hollywood versions, you have, it's not only clean and cozy, but you have all these very well-behaved talking animals, right? Um, There were no talking animals when Christ was born. First century mangers were the exact opposite. Uh, They were crude, um, they were smelly, they were dirty, they had they had animal urine and animal feces. Okay, that's that's how our Lord came into this world. And they would have been crowded. If there was no room in the inn, then people they, they tried to seek shelter at night, so they crammed into places like a, um, um, a manger where they were there with other animals, with other people. It was a dangerous place, so Joseph was probably on guard all night trying to protect um, his newborn son and his wife. In other words, the picture that we have in the West is very different than it would have been then. And so the question you should ask, the question I ask is, why would God do this? I mean, if God could, 700 years before the birth of Christ, tell exactly where the Christ was going to be born in a town that didn't even exist on the map 700 years prior, if he could do that, then certainly he could have made reservations in the inn in Bethlehem for Mary and Jesus to be born. I don't think that would have been too big a deal for God. And so God chose these humble, I would say vile, and I would say violent conditions for his son to come in to reveal something to us, something great to us, and that is the humble, desperate estate of mankind. Christ entered, and even in his birth, he was teaching us something about ourselves. This is This is the eternal Son of God we're talking about. When Christ came, the birth of Jesus, this is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, one in being with the Father. This is God coming as a man. And yet he comes as a helpless baby born to no-name parents in a no-name town and his first night on the earth that he made, he spends with animals and feces and urine. It's supposed to shock us. My beloved, I would argue that that one-star hotel room you got on orbits that you showed up and you went, we can't stay here, that was a presidential palace compared to this manger in Palestine that Jesus was born in. You see, friends, unlike Hollywood's depiction of Jesus being born in a manger 2,000 years ago, the Son of God's descent from the glory of heaven to the humiliation of life as a human being is deeply theological. It is to teach us our own poverty, our own sinfulness, our own desperate need to be saved by grace through faith because there's nothing we can do on our own to fix our problem. Humility, my beloved, There's lots of ways to understand it, but I think one of the best ways to understand humility is seeing yourself rightly in the presence of a righteous God. Humility is knowing that you are a created being, not the creator. It's seeing God's holiness, and it's seeing who you are, which is a sinner in need of grace. Even John the Baptist, who we've heard a lot about over these past few weeks, even John the Baptist, when he started his ministry, and he started baptizing people in the Jordan. Remember, he was telling them to repent of their sins, to prepare for faith in Christ and the Messiah. You remember that. In Luke chapter three, a few couple chapters ahead of us, one chapter actually, this is what he said to the crowds. They're coming out to be baptized, and he's dealing with, he's dealing with hearts that are prideful. He said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, he said, you brood of vipers, you, you brood of snakes, 
He said, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? And then he said this, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. We don't need salvation. We don't need to seek forgiveness for our sins. We have Abraham. John said this, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now, grievously, my beloved, this was not, pride was not simply a first century Jewish problem. Pride is a universal problem because it is a product of the fallen heart. We think better of ourselves than we ought, don't we? I mean, if we're going to be really, really honest, when we think about ourselves, we usually paint ourselves in a much better picture than what is actually true, not only in what we do, but how we think and feel, what's going on in the inside. In our heart of hearts, I do not believe that even mature Christians are okay saying, I am not worthy of God. I'm not worthy of eternal life. In our heart of hearts, we actually do not believe Paul when he said Jews and Greeks are under sin. We do not believe Paul when he said, none is righteous, no, not one. All have turned aside. All have become worthless. No one does good. No, not one. I don't think we really believe that. We get close to it, and we say yes, amen to it, but when we reflect upon it, we don't like it. In fact, in the Western culture, many professing Christians consider their middle-class lives, you know, we, 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 we're civilized, we have educations now, and, and we work, and we have material possessions. So even in our middle-class structure, we look upon those in the Scripture and say, yeah, they, they were crude, they were, they were despicable, we get that. And we look at other cu- cultures and we say, yeah, maybe they, Paul was talking about those people, but not us, not us. I think many in the Western church have become just like you heard Sidney read, like that church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. Remember what they said. We are rich, we have prospered, and we need nothing, not realizing that we are wretched, pitiful, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. We don't see ourselves clearly because pride keeps us from so doing. We don't see ourselves as being sinful and need of a Savior because of pride. When I, was, when I was younger, I used to enjoy engaging in pickup basketball games at the park, at the gym. It was something that I enjoyed doing. It was a good way to burn calories and, and have some fun at the same time. And invariably, there was, always, there was always that guy in his late 40s, early 50s, who was just standing there wanting to, to jump in. And, and you could tell at some point in his life, he actually could play basketball. He had some good skill sets. But age had caught up with him, and his vertical was gone, his quickness was gone, and his outside shot was gone. In his mind, when he played, he played like a 20-year-old. But on the court, he played like a 50-year-old. The problem was, and most of the time, that pride led him to believe that he was actually better than he actually was. It it led him to believe that he was actually playing like the 20-year-old, and it made it impossible for him to concede that he was not the glorious basketball player that he once was, if he ever was. Last year, I had a chance to play in a pickup game in my neighborhood. In my mind, I played like a 20-year-old. On the court, I played like a 50-year-old. Now listen, pride makes it difficult for us to see ourselves as we truly are. On the basketball court, it's no big deal. A little bit of embarrassment, maybe a loss that means absolutely nothing. On Judgment Day, when we stand before the Lord, my beloved, pride 
will be your destruction. When we stand before the Lord, we need to see God clearly. We need to see ourselves clearly as sinners in need of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. Right? If we come before the Lord on judgment day in our pride, it will lead to eternal damnation. One of the reasons Jesus came in the lowly, humiliating conditions that he did as the poor, shamed, remember he was the alleged bastard child of Mary. The reason that he came like that was to reveal to us who we really are, to destroy our pride and to show us that we are sinners in need of grace also, that we do not measure up to God's glory and God's goodness. And we know that, that we because we think more highly of ourselves than we ought, we dismiss the birth of Christ. We dismiss the need for salvation. We dismiss the need for a savior. So Christ came as a baby to make us sober, that we might even this day have a sober assessment of who we really are. When we look at ourselves in the mirror, you're not that good. The scriptures teach the opposite, that there is no one good, no, not one. There's no one who seeks after God. There is no one righteous other than Christ. So instead of being proud, Christ came to humble us. So that in our humility, we what? We cry out to God for mercy. We say, Lord, I am a sinner and I need grace. And we cry out to God for mercy. And then God does what? He forgives us. He grants mercy and grace freely to the humble heart. James was right. James 4, 6. God opposes the proud, but what? He gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble to, show, to enable you to see who you really are, to cry out for mercy that you too might have Christ. So the first thing we see from Luke's account, I hope, is the Savior's humble entrance reveals our desperate estate as sinners in need of a Savior. Point number two, the Savior's humble audience reveals God's comprehensive, all-inclusive love. Look at verse eight. And in the same region, so in the same region near Bethlehem, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. They did that because if they didn't, some of the sheep would actually wander off. Sheep are not very bright. Or they'd be attacked by animals. So they would take watches actually and they would take turns watching the sheep to make sure they were safe. Verse nine. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, to the shepherds. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they, the shepherds, were filled with with great fear. Now this testimony, which we heard several weeks ago, Kirk preached to you, there are three things that stand out. The messengers, the messengers, the message, and those who receive the message. Let's look briefly at the messengers, these, this angel of the Lord first, who comes in the glory of God. In other words, he appears, which would be a shocking thing anyway. I mean, it's, it's quiet. The, the sheep are resting and then suddenly this angel of the Lord appears. But, but he doesn't just show up. He shows up in the glory of God. So there's, there's some visible display. Lights, sounds, trumpets, who knows. But it's big and it's filling now the night sky. And it fills it in such a way that they're actually terrified. They're, they're very afraid. And then following the announcement of Christ, look at verse 13. Not just the angel, Lord, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, so that's thousands and thousands of angels, praising God and saying, verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. We'll look at that a little bit more. But this night sky now went from darkness and quiet to being filled with thousands of angels 
and light and singing and the glory of God. It was probably unmatched in human history up to that point in time and will be, I think, unmatched until Christ comes again in glory with the heavenly hosts, with the angels. But the reason it was so magnificent, the messengers in their, in their glory of God, the reason it was such a big deal because of the message that they were bringing. Look at verse 10. The angel of the Lord said to them, the shepherds, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So instead of fear and dread, the angel says, <laughs> after giving them a mild cardiac arrest, settle down, relax, I bring you a message, a good news message, a good news message of great joy for all people. The Savior, the judge, right? So if you know your, your Old Testament, the time of the judges, the, the people would be in sin and rebellion against God and God would raise up a judge. He would raise up a Savior to redeem the people from their enemies, and this is what the, the angel is saying, that the judge, capital T, capital H, capital E, the judge, the Savior, has come to redeem God's people. He's here. They said, he's here today. He was just born. And as we saw last week, the enemies, the great enemies of, of, of mankind are Satan, sin, and death. And so this Savior's come to, to do battle with Satan, sin, and death and to restore this broken creation. Now what makes this announcement shocking, it's not the messenger or the message. I, I don't think. I mean, the message of God sending his son deserves the glory of the angels. And it's not as though it's a new message. God had been saying it for millennia that he was going to be sending a savior, he's going to be sending his son to save mankind. So it's not like it's, it's news, new news, it's just new to them because it's actually happening. What's shocking about how Luke records these events and what they did not expect and even we today would not expect, especially there, they, they, were, they lived in an honor-shame culture. So they were moved by position and power. It meant a lot in terms of how you saw someone. The angel of the Lord appears to who? Shepherds. To shepherds. And he said, I know I read about shepherds and I've heard about them in the Bible. But the shepherd was a, a member of the lower class of society. Um, many of them were not even considered to be very good people. <laughs> In fact, they didn't have a good reputation. Shepherd could be used at times as a derogatory term or as a term for a sinner. If you were a shepherd, you were considered a sinner. Working class folks, certainly, hand to mouth each day. No power and no authority in the culture. So in an honor-shame culture, they were at the very, very bottom. Now, what's amazing is that God, in his announcement that the Christ had been born, would go to them first. He would reveal this history-changing announcement to them. Not the religious elite, not the scribes and the Pharisees, not the Sanhedrin. Why didn't he go to Caesar? Why didn't he go to Herod the Great? Why didn't he go to people in positions of power and money? Why would he go to these lowly shepherds? They certainly were not worthy in the cultural context. He goes to them, we know, because this message is all-inclusive. Look at, look at verse 10. Verse 10 is an amazing verse. The angel of the Lord says in verse 10, 
I bring you good news of great joy that will be for whom? For all the people. Not just the rich, not just the powerful, not just Caesar, and not just you, lowly shepherds. It will be for all people. All the people of Israel, old and rich, young, poor, religious, non-religious, powerful, weak, slave, free. This message that the Christ had come was for all of Israel and through Israel and the prophets, I mean the apostles, for every tribe, tongue, and nation. This message was for all mankind. In other words, my beloved, the reason it was such great good news is that no one was left out. No one was left out. Not the shepherds and not Caesar himself. Just as we had a chance to sing in Joy to the World. They're all invited. It's very much, it's very much like the, the, uh, the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew chapter 22. Remember when the guests don't come and that was analogous to the Jews at the time. And so the king who's throwing the wedding, he says to his servants this. He says, go to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. In other words, this message of Christ coming to set man free from his sin is a message for you, it's a message for me, it's a message for everyone. And that's what makes this celebration such a a universal celebration. That's why many people have gathered in churches like this throughout the world because this is a message of hope for all people. For all people. Because all people what? All people need it. Right, we're, we're all sinners. We all start off in sin. We all continue in sin. And so this message is a message of hope that this Messiah would bring, the Savior would bring. It was actually a message of, of not just hope of being saved, it was a message of, of peace. Look at verse 14. The angels declare, this is all the angels now singing together, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased So God in the highest heavens is being praised by the angels because he has done something extraordinary. He started something extraordinary. This God has brought peace upon the earth. Now there's lots of ways to use that term. Usually in in our Western culture, we think of peace, we think of free from anxiety, right? That's, That's generally what we do. If you live right now in Israel or Gaza, you think peace as an end of war. That's actually not either of what this particular peace here that's promised that God is bringing. This is peace that comes with the coming in the Messiah. This is a much larger peace. This is a reshaping of the entire social order and fabric of life where well-being, prosperity, security, harmony in all relationships and all of life actually exist and thrive. In the Old Testament, in the Hebrew understanding, it was shalom. You've probably heard that term, peace. You've heard someone say Shabbat shalom, rest and peace. Shalom, this peace though, again, it's not the Western peace, it's all of life. I'll, I'll give you, this, this definition was great. This one author put it like this. He said, shalom, peace, is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire, in the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, 
a state of affairs, listen to this, that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he, what? He delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. It's the way things were supposed to be before the fall and sin entered through Adam and Eve. So this shalom-like peace on earth, this bringing of the way things ought to be came with Christ the first time when he was born as a baby in a manger and it will be fulfilled when he comes again in glory, that true, ultimate shalom. We saw that in Revelation chapter 21, right? When the dwelling of God is with man and, and John wrote this, he, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Shalom, peace will all exist for all people. Yeah, it's a great picture, isn't it? The question you want to ask yourself is, will you enjoy it? Will you have shalom? Will you have the peace of God in this new creation? Who will experience it? In verse 14, it says, glory to God in the highest, look again, and on earth peace, shalom, among those with whom he, God, is pleased. Well, who is God pleased with? If it's those whom he's pleased with that get peace, you say, well, is he pleased with me? Who will that be? We've already established in Romans chapter three that there's no one good, no, not one. There's no one righteous and there's no one who seeks after God. So no one starts off being pleasing to the Lord. We know that any favored relationship, the Bible teaches this clearly, any favored relationship between God and man is God's doing first. We know that. God has mercy upon whom he will have mercy. At the same time, the psalmist tells us and, I, and I'm pretty sure that the angels were quoting the psalm of Psalm 147. Tells us who God is pleased with. Listen to this, Psalm 147. His delight, God's delight, is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs, that's the power of man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. I'll read that again. The Lord takes pleasure and those that he ple- he's pleased with receive his peace. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and in those who hope in his steadfast love. Now, that word fear him is, today you can translate that, it's an Old Testament understanding of those who worship him, right? Those who worship God above family, above work, above money, that put God first and foremost. Everyone that worships God, everyone that trusts in God's steadfast love in who he is and what he's done in Christ. Everyone. The lowly shepherd, Caesar in his palace, it doesn't matter who it is, everyone who trusts in him will enjoy peace because they will be favored by God. You see, my friends, the peace that Christ brought to accomplish for us what we could not do for ourselves, it did not start in Bethlehem. It did not come at Bethlehem. Christ came to Bethlehem to become the man that would ascend the cross at Calvary to accomplish this peace. We celebrate Christmas because there's no Calvary and there's no cross and there's no sacrifice without Bethlehem. So we're very thankful that Christ came as he did. But it wasn't in Bethlehem that he secured this peace. It was at Calvary when he ascended the cross and on the cross in his own undoing 
his own physical and his own spiritual undoing, when Jesus Christ on the cross did what? When he embraced for us the perfect absence of peace. When he bore in his flesh the perfect absence of shalom. All that is good, all that is right, all that is pure. He had the opposite because he received the wrath of God. He did this to secure our shalom, to secure our peace. For whom? For all who would put their faith in his steadfast love. Who all would trust in the Father's work in sending the Son, in sending Christ to bear the anguish we rightly deserved as sinners. Christ did this so that God's good pleasure, God's good favor could rest upon all who repent and believe. All who say, enough of my sin, enough of my pride, enough of this lowliness. I will put my faith and trust in God to save me. Friends, by making the announcement to the shepherds, God shatters every barrier that keeps sinful man from salvation in Christ. Every single one. Every social, every economic, every racial barrier. Any barrier that we put up is shattered by this announcement to the shepherds that glorious night. All people, including you, no matter where you are today, saved, unsaved, professing, non-professing, that hope is there for you. That you don't have to remain in the lowly, desperate, sinful state. That you can look to Christ. You can put your hope in in Christ and the steadfast love of Christ and be saved too. So we've seen one, how the Savior's humble entrance reveals our desperate estate and need for salvation. Number two, how the Savior's humble audience reveals God's comprehensive love that the message, the good news is for all people in all places at all times. Lastly, number three, the Savior's humble beginnings produces a humble response. If you hear This clearly, what Jesus did in Bethlehem, the only right, the only reasonable, I would say the only rational response is one of radical humility. The angel of the Lord, when when speaking to the shepherd, said, listen, I got a sign for you. Because, you know, he... The angels are appearing and you know, they might think, you know, you know we, we had some, some really weird tasting burritos last night and you know, it might be the middle of the night, a, a, a weird dream that we're having. So the angel says, listen, I'm going to give you a sign to authenticate that all this is real. Look at verse 11. The angel says to the shepherds, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So it's, it's God the Messiah, the Savior. And this is, will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. In other words, the humiliation of Christ was not only to reveal our lowly estates as sinners in need of salvation. It was not only to reveal that this message was for all mankind. It was a li- literal sign that the shepherds could go verify that God had actually spoken, that it was actually true. Look at verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, from the shepherds, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Let's go check it out. Let's go see if this is real, that this Christ the Lord, this Savior Messiah, this Son of David, this King, was actually born. So they went looking. They they left their, their sheep, and they went into Bethlehem, and they were running around mangers. I mean, It couldn't be that hard to find how many babies were there wrapped in swaddling cloth lying in a manger in Bethlehem. Probably not many. 
Maybe none other than Christ himself. And so they go to look and look at verse 16. And they went with haste and they, they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger, just as the angel had said. In other words, the sign is authenticated because there's Mary, there's Joseph, and there's a baby swaddled in cloth, lying in a manger. Verse 17, and when they, the shepherds, saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. They said, oh, we knew because angels told us. All those around were listening to the affirmation of the birth of this child that the angels revealed to the shepherds and now to all those who were able to hear Now, I want you to listen to the response of all those involved. It's quite extraordinary. They all heard this testimony that the angels spoke to the shepherds that this child born of Mary was the Christ, the Lord, the Savior. Listen to their response, and then I want us to respond the same way. I want us to respond. Look at verse 18. And all who heard it, all those that were around the manger that night, what a a place to be. You talk about opportunities. All who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Three different responses, wonder, meditation, and praise, all from the same type of heart, humility. Humble hearts respond in this way. The first thing that we're told is this news shared by the shepherd caused all those present to wonder. The Greek would be to marvel, to be in amazement. Not wonder as like, what's going on? But wonder as in, I'm amazed and overwhelmed at what is transpiring. So instead of, listen, instead of dismissing it as as fantasy or as fake or as religious fanaticism like we do today because we're, we're too smart to think about babies being born in mangers that are actually God. Right? Instead of doing that, they believed, they were amazed, they are moved by the fact that God would do such a great thing for sinners like them. Because remember, those who are hanging out in the manger, they're poor too. They're lowly too. And yet this message was for them. The salvation was for them. You see, my beloved, prideful hearts are not easily amazed. Prideful hearts don't wonder well. Right? We, because prideful hearts think they, they know everything. And so we sit smugly and we might hear something as extraordinary as the Son of God being born to a virgin in a manger and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we'll dismiss it as fake or fanaticism or just plain myth. It's the humble heart that sees that God is real. It's the humble heart that sees themselves in relationship to the holiness of God. It's the humble heart, my beloved, that knows you're not God. The humble heart knows that we are creatures. We are small, little, tiny, sinful creatures. Even though we act like God, we're not. The humble heart's able to hear news about the birth of Christ the Lord and be amazed, amazed by it. Even 2,000 years later, how many Christmases have you celebrated? How many times have you heard this story? And do you hear today and go, yeah, yeah, Christ, manger, Mary, sheep, shepherds? Or are you amazed by it? Is your heart captivated by it? Because this truth is so extraordinary. If not, my beloved, if you're not amazed by the simple reading, when Kirk read verses one through seven, if you're not amazed by it, I would argue that pride's made its way in. It snuck into your heart. It got in there somehow where the birth of the Son of God has become normal. 
or even bland or even seasonal. If you are no longer amazed that God sent His Son to save a sinner like you, like you, then pride has made its way in. The right response to that is is confession, friends. If you are not amazed at the birth of Christ, then confess that to God and say, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for even 2,000 years later not being in wonder and awe that you would send your son to become a man to redeem a sinner like you and me. Seek forgiveness and ask God to show you the extravagant measures he took to love you, to redeem you. So that's the first response was awe and wonder. The second was Mary's. Look at Mary, equally humble in her response. Verse 19, it says, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Now Mary, Mary had been exposed in the previous months to probably more revelation about the coming of the Messiah than any other person on earth at that time. I mean, Gabriel visited her. Obviously, she experienced that. She heard about Gabriel's visit to Zechariah. She heard about Gabriel's visit to Elizabeth. She certainly knew about the angel that revealed himself to Joseph. Her husband said, don't divorce Mary. I'm sure Joseph shared that with her over a dinner or something. She knew about John leaping in Elizabeth's womb. She knew about Elizabeth's prophecy because she was receiving it when Elizabeth told her about how blessed she was, and she certainly heard about Zachariah's prophecy when the Holy Spirit came upon him. In other words, this woman had massive, specific, and special revelation. Like no other person on earth at that point in time, she knew more about the Messiah's coming than anybody else. And yet, the shepherds testify to what they heard, and she doesn't go, yeah, 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 I know, I know. She doesn't. They only tell her what she already knew to be true, but she didn't receive it as old news. She didn't receive it as redundant news. In humility, look at verse 19 again. She listened intently, and what did she do? She treasured these teachings up. That's a way of saying she took them all together, and she preserved them. She held on to them. And then it says that she pondered them in her heart. In other words, she, she meditated on them. She thought about them. She gathered them together, she preserved them in their truth, and she held them, and she thought about them, and she rejoiced over them. Every time she thought, she rejoiced. So Mary, so blessed and so favored by God, was eager and hungry to receive the revelation the shepherds had to share as a humble, hungry follower of Christ before he was even a man. So I ask you, Do you cherish God's word like this too? Do you cherish this teaching like this too? When you hear it, when you you hear a sermon, this sermon or another sermon, or you read your Bible or you're part of a Bible study, are, are you like Mary? Are you humble and hungry? Eagerly anticipating, eagerly awaiting God to show you something new about himself, something new about you, and eagerly eagerly awaiting to participate your role in it. This was just the beginning for Mary. She was going to spend the next 30 years raising the Son of God. She was going to see her son be mocked, be persecuted, and be put to death. This was the beginning of her journey with the Lord, and yet she received it with humility and with eagerness. Is that you? You see, in our pride, we have a tendency to think we we know all that we need to know about God and salvation, right? I I know the gospel. You've told me the gospel, pastor. 
I, I don't really need to know much more beyond this. We don't need to dig. We think we don't need to study. We don't need to meditate on the word of God that we already know. No need to continue growing in the wisdom and knowledge of God, even though it was Jesus who said what? Man does not live upon bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Every word. I don't know about you. I don't know every word yet. Lots of time to still study and meditate and dig if I'm going to be a humble, hungry follower of Christ as Mary was. We want to know God better that we might participate in the role that he's given us. Right? Your role is not Mary's role. Your role is not to raise the Son of God. But you do have a role if you've been saved by grace and you've been brought into a community of believers like Christ Community Church. You have a role. You have a part to play. You have people to serve. You have gifts to exercise. You have ministry to do. People to disciple. Are you amazed? Do you meditate on the word of God? And I'll give you one more and I'll close. And do you glorify and praise God for what he has done? Look at verse 20. So all those around were amazed. Mary treasures and meditates on what she knows to be true. Verse 20. And the shepherds return. They go, they got to get back to their sheep. Glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. What a night. What a night for these shepherds. Come on. I mean, it's a night like any other night. And then the angels show up and they go meet God in the flesh. That's a big night. I mean, they, they heard the angels glorifying God. They saw the angels glorifying God. They saw the the magnificence of the glory of God around the angels. They heard about the testimony of the Christ. Then they went and they saw the Christ. They heard about this message of peace that God was bringing through him, and then they got to enjoy that peace. And so they go back. And what do they do? They glorify and they praise God. Right? No one told them they had to. No one even told them how. It was just coming out of them because all they had seen and heard, they were changed by it. Permanently changed by it, no doubt. They were repeating on earth the heavenly praises of the angels, the good news of great joy for all people, that in the city of David, a Savior who was Christ the Lord had been born that very night in human history. Praising and glorifying God, honoring God for who he is and what he has done in sending his Son to save sinners like us. My beloved, this is the right, humble response to the Christmas story. This is it. When we talk about the reason for the season that Christ came to redeem sinful man, the right response is one of praise and glory given to God with humble hearts. It's seeing ourselves clearly for who we are. It's seeing that we are prideful and confessing that to God and being redeemed by Christ. King David was right when he said in the 8th Psalm, he said, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? That's the right question, that God would care for us so much that he'd send Christ as a man to redeem sinners like us. But then David said, yet you have made him, speaking of man, a little lower than the angels, the, the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. Jesus Christ left the glory of heaven descended to earth to become a man that he might take prideful, sinful, 
rebellious creatures like us, humble us through his coming that he might redeem us to glory and honor as well. This is the promise that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the promise that he fulfilled in the sending of his son to make sons and daughters out of sinners like us. Why? So that we can have shalom, so that we can have peace now and peace forever with God. As you consider the humility of Jesus' birth, I I want to encourage you to see your humble estate. Ask God to show that to you so that you can cry out to God for mercy and be saved. As you see him coming to the shepherds, I pray that you would see that this message is for everyone, that no one's left out. In fact, the only way to get left out is to leave yourself out. The door is open, right? If you knock, Christ will open it to you. Be amazed at the Christmas story. Be in wonder over it. Meditate on it deeply as Mary did. Treasure it up in your heart and then do what you were made to do. Praise and glorify God for who he is and for what he's done. The greatest gift given to you is that of God to man in the form of his son. Jesus is the greatest gift. He calls you this morning to come and open it. It's him. It's life with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we will we start by asking for forgiveness for not being amazed, for not meditating and not praising and glorifying your name for sending the Son. I ask, Lord, that you would humble us, every one of us, regardless of where we are in our knowledge of you, regardless of where we are in our relationship with you, Lord, I pray for true humility that we might examine ourselves clearly in light of who you are, your righteousness and your goodness and who we are. I pray, Father, that you would use this Christmas season and the humility of Christ at his birth to transform your people, transform your church, transform our church, Lord, that we might be the most um, pleasing that we can be in your sight. I pray, Lord, that we would be humble, truly humble, that we would love one another and that we would love the lost and that we would um, take time this season to tell others about Christ. Many do not know. We're so thankful you made that known to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Christ Community Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit lovinglord.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.